you are listening to a podcast from The National. It has been a hyper busy week for aviation and travel in Dubai. And we hear all about mergers and acquisitions from CAS Business School's Scott Moller. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National's newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. With me also is Chris Nelson, Assistant Business Editor. Hi, Chris. Hi there, Mustafa. So what grabbed your attention thus far? Well, um, it's an ongoing story, actually, that had, of course, um, a twist that could only be provided by uh, the Sage of Omaha, Warren Buffett. Um, there's been a, um, a, a battle over the ownership of a U.S. Uh, uh, oil company called Anadarko Petroleum. Now, if you've not heard of it, it's one of the world's biggest independent oil and gas exploration and production companies. It has around 1.47 billion barrels of oil equivalent in reserves. Um, and it's, it has been the subject of a battle between Occidental Petroleum uh, and Chevron over, t- over a, a takeover. Um, Anadarko had already accepted a $33 billion from sh- offer from Chevron when this week uh, Mr. Buffett stepped in and uh, effectively gave Occidental $10 billion so it could mount its uh, uh, um, push for Anadarko. Anadarko then turned around and said, ah, right, okay, well, then we'll, uh, we'll listen to you, rather listen to you, despite the fact that um, Occidental's offer is $33 billion rather than uh, uh, Chevron's 38. So that surprised everybody, really, but apart from those who know how uh, Mr. Buffett operates, of course, um, it's, it's a typical uh, move by him and Berkshire, really. To, to swoop when things look um, look good uh, for him. And what he gets is 100,000 shares of preferred stock in Occidental. Um, and uh, it comes after Occidental went public with its offer last week, uh, which created this unusual, uh, quite an unusual uh, bidding war. Um, and some of the analysts had said that uh, before the before the Warren Buffett announcement came out, um, that uh, it was pretty much that Chevron would have increased their bid to be more competitive. Or well, Chevron have now effectively that that deal's dead now effectively with this. But Chevron were not happy about uh, Anadarko going back to uh, Occidental. And in fact, uh, their chief executive went public saying they didn't even have the decency to pick up the phone. So. Uh, so there we go. It looks like the Chevron deal is dead and Occidental will take over Anadarko. Occidental Petroleum, uh, also known as Oxy, very active in Abu Dhabi, of course. And we have a lot of coverage um, on this story from, for example, Robin Mills, one of our columnists, um, as well as in the national.ae on various developments in the oil and gas sector. So please do go there um, or follow us on social media if you want to keep up with that. Uh, also, a lot of coverage uh, in terms of business, Arabian travel market, the one of the biggest trade shows for tourism, aviation, travel for this region. Uh, luckily, we have with us today Sarah Townsend and Dina Camel, who've been down there covering. Um, Dina, can I start with you? You're our aviation correspondent. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interesting uh, comments from Sheikh Ahmed bin Saeed of Emirates and Fly Dubai, who offered some home truths for Boeing over the 737 MAX, which has been grounded following those deadly crashes. Uh, Dina Sheikh Ahmed, he didn't pull his punches? Um, Absolutely. He made it clear in no uncertain terms how he felt about Boeing. Uh, Now, Sheikh Ahmed, of course, is the chairman uh, of uh, Fly Dubai and uh, the sister carrier Emirates. Um, And Fly Dubai, obviously, is the world's uh, second largest customer of the uh, Boeing 737 MAX. So it's got a big um, stake in this issue. Um, Sheikh Ahmed made it very clear that he was um, unhappy about 
um, Boeing's communication over the grounding of the 737 MAX. Um, he said that there was a lot of questions that were left unanswered um, about the fixes for, for the airplane, um, about when it, the grounding uh, will be lifted. Um, and, and certainly he said he will not hesitate to um, go ahead and ask Boeing for a compensation uh, because Fly Dubai has grounded 14 uh, of its 737 MAXs, which of course, you know, disrupts the network, disrupts the schedule, uh, causes shrinkage in, um, uh, in, in routes. Um, so, so that's that's a lot of um, a, a lot of planning and rescheduling right there. Um, he has also said that, uh, and this is this is a big blow to Boeing. He's also said that he is talking to their European rival, uh, Airbus, over in Toulouse, um, about potentially switching that order to um, the competing model, uh, which is the A three twenty Neos. Um, so Boeing, uh, that leaves Boeing in a really tough spot. Um, that was. Um, the harshest criticism that, that they've received from the region. I mean, Sheikh Ahmed uh, being very tough there, he has to be, um, given the companies he's running also, you know, it, it's not easy running an airline at the moment. Sure. And, and the challenge of the 737 MAX sure. um, it, it just adds adds to the difficulties. But he wasn't the only um, airline executive there. He spoke to a few others who who also weighed in on the, on the, on the MAX story. Uh, absolutely. A few other airline um Chief executives were quite vocal um, about the Boeing Max issue. Um, the uh, the president um, of Emirates, Sir Tim Clark, uh, who's very well respected, of course, in in the aviation world, also weighed in uh, during the Arabian travel market and um, said that he actually um, b- believes that Boeing will find a fix for this. Um, that this is an um, airline who uh, who's been developing models of the 737 uh, for a very long time, and he trusts and expressed confidence that they will uh, be able to to sort it out, and that once the uh, aircraft is uh, certified to fly again and is established to be safe, um, that, that they will um, overcome this crisis. So uh, definitely that was um, quite the backing from Sir Tim Clark there. Uh, we also heard from other um, airline executives. Um, there was um, the CEO of Air Arabia, which is, of course, the um, Sharjah-based uh, low-cost uh, airline. Um, uh, now, Mr. Adil Ali, the CEO, he is looking at an order, actually. He's looking at ordering some um, narrow-body aircraft. And, and he is looking at both Airbus and Boeing. Uh, he's not inclu- excluded Boeing from, uh, from the consideration. Um, he hopes that by the time he's ready to make a decision for his order in another three or four months, um, that hopefully uh, Boeing would have sorted this issue out. Um, so that's his stance. It's it's a sort of wait and see mode. Um, and finally, we've also heard from the chief executive of uh, Fly a Deal. Um, now, Fly a Deal is the um, uh, low-cost carrier from Saudi Arabia. And um, its chief executive, Mr. Khan Korfiatas, uh, he's um, actually ordered about 30 of the 737 MAXs before this issue unfolded globally. Um, and he has told us that he's going to um, think about the order and make a decision um, uh, whether to, to proceed uh, with it or not within um, the few coming weeks. 
Um, so he joins many other global airlines who are rethinking uh, their orders in in light of the complications uh, of the MAX. So the, the Arabian travel market, by all accounts, uh, from your coverage, Dina, your coverage, Sarah, very busy. Um, the air, aviation were well represented. Tourism was very well represented. A lot of the tourism authorities, not just from the UAE, around the region, around the world, Azerbaijan, for example, we're talking to you, Sarah, about their their outlook for demand. Uh, but but what, one thing that struck me, um, you spoke to quite a few hotel operators, Sarah, who, yes. who to me were, were quite bullish. They really were. They really were very bullish. And to give you a bit of a rundown, I mean, I spoke to the CEO of uh, Jamira Group, Dubai's Jamira Group, Jose Silva. I mean, he was saying that the group's planning to double their whole global portfolio, and that is mainly going to be led by global expansion. So particularly in China, elsewhere in Asia, and then in Europe, both southern Europe and, and in sort of mainland Europe in all of the sort of big key cities. Um, so he was extremely bullish. Perhaps that comes as, uh, as slightly less of a surprise because they have been doing extremely well over the last years and they, and they have sort of, uh, you know, deep, deep pockets and, 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 you know, their finances are, uh, are sort of pretty strong, they have said over the past. Um, we've also heard from uh, Hilton and IHG, two major uh, global hotel groups. They're also both planning to double their portfolios in, in the next three to five years. Um, particularly IHG was talking about Saudi. Um, that's going to be a massive market for it. Um, for Hilton, they're looking at Saudi as well. Um, they're also looking at other markets in Africa because, of course, their region, their Middle East region, covers that as well. Um, interestingly, they're also looking at entering Iraq, Syria and Pakistan, um, mm. assuming that the security and sort of political situations of those countries, those markets, improves, which it is doing at the moment. So that's very interesting space to watch. And then we've also got uh, Abu Dhabi's own Rotana Group, who we interviewed last year. And in fact, the CEO, the former CEO who's, who's now left, he was very sort of straight up and saying, look, it's been a really, really tough, tough few years for us. You know, we've really sort of shrunk back. We've cut costs here and there. Um, hotel room rates and revenues have really fallen across the whole region in the past few years. Um, mainly well two main reasons really um oil revenues or oil prices obviously going down and that sort of made people sort of fight for a bit more kind of bargain deals on the hotel front um so rates have have come down to sort of keep occupancy rates higher um and sort of meet meet demand and then on the other front there's been a massive amount of new hotel supply across the region and, and that is that is still happening, and, and rates are still falling. And yet, these hotels were extremely bullish. bullish and Rotana said that it's going to have its best year yet this year. In, in, not, in Abu Dhabi, not, not, not yet actually. In the last four to five yeah. years. But Abu, Abu Dhabi is uh, is going to be one of those yeah. markets, right? Absolutely. Abu Dhabi saw something like double digit growth um, year on year in the first quarter of this year, which is really fantastic and, and a great turnaround. It shows how, um, I guess, all of their strategy. Um, that we were we were told about last year, which was to sort of hunker down, focus on growth in their sort of key market, um, and and find efficiencies where they where they can is paying off. Sarah Townsend, Dina Camel, thanks so much, uh, and all your stories are on the national.ae. So please 
uh, do go there to, to read these interviews and, and other reports. Uh, I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, Chris spoke to Cass Business School's Scott Moller. Um, he talked to you about M&A, Chris, is that right? Yeah, uh, he's, he was an interesting guy. He, he previously held very high positions at uh, banks, including um, uh, Morgan Stanley and Deutsche Bank. And he's now a specialist in teaching mergers and acquisitions. Um, and we start, started talking about what is the diff, basic difference between a merger and an acquisition from the point of view of companies and shareholders. Um, then we take a look at um, what's driving the banking sector consolidation in this region. And we t- take a quick look at uh, the disastrous collapse of the Deutsche Bank Commerce Bank merger talk. Okay, let's hear the interview. Uh, welcome, Scott. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Um, you have a rich and varied uh, career in in, fi- in finance, um, at the moment being director of uh, mergers and acquisitions research uh, uh, at the center at Cass Business School and a former CEO and director of executive education. Um, sort of in the, the real finance world, if you like. Um, you've also worked for Deutsche Bank um, and for uh, Morgan Stanley. Um, is it safe to say that the world of big finance uh, is somewhere where you're happy? Well, big finance is one that I seem to have found a home. Uh, it was 24 years in finance and obviously now teaching finance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, could you give us a, a brief role of what, what is your, a brief outline of what is your role at, uh, at CAS at the moment? Yeah, I uh, actually was the founder of the M&A Research Center at CAS. Uh, it is the only M&A Research Center at any leading business school. Um, so therefore, I like to say we're the leading one, but being the only one, we're the leading one uh, <laughs> yeah. on that. Uh, but we do run a number of academic conferences. Uh, we work quite closely with a number of corporates in trying to understand the M&A market a lot better. Uh, we very nicely do have a number of uh, both, uh, sponsors, both corporate and otherwise, uh, that help us get there. Um, and for uh, those who may not be um, as adept at understanding the, the terminology, can you give us a, a basic uh, explanation? What is the difference between a merger and an acquisition? Well, unfortunately, most people use those two terms interchangeably. Uh, and when I teach, one of the first things I say in my class is that they are not the same. And actually, in this class, we should be precise about that. So mm-hmm. that's a wonderful question because there's many, many a journalist uh, who won't make the distinction between the two. But let me tell you what the uh, principal difference is. In acquisition is what it says on the tin. Uh, that is one company acquires the other company. The acquiring company typically called the buyer, uh, then uh, continues to remain pretty much the company in charge and their legal entity continues, uh, whereas the target company ceases to exist as a separate legal entity. Now, in an acquisition, that uh, might become a new division of a company. Uh, That doesn't mean that the brand names disappear. It doesn't mean that the people disappear. And very often to a consumer, you may never know that the company was acquired by another company. A great example of that would be when Kraft, uh, the American cheese and food company, bought Cadbury in the UK. Um, Nobody saw any difference uh, to their Cadbury chocolates and the cream eggs that they were were eating uh, on that. Uh, Nevertheless, there were things that Kraft M was able to do. So, for example, back in the States, I don't think it ever was a hit anywhere else in the world. You could get Cadbury 
uh, chocolate-flavored Philadelphia brand cream cheese, uh, a concoction which I've not tried myself, but you know, did show that you could actually do something with it. But but it was acquired by another company. They ceased to trade on the uh, exchange. Uh, they ceased as a separate company. Uh, senior management and the board no longer uh, remained, but basically everything else remained as it was. Uh, that's an acquisition. Um, a merger is different. A merger typically uh, takes place where two companies are of close relative size. Otherwise, probably one would have acquired the other one. But the merger takes place where uh, two companies that are relatively similar in size, uh, probably similar in operations. So in other words, this is a company that two companies that do something quite similar or can even be three companies, as we've seen recently with the announcement of banking deal, you know, right here in the region. Mm-hmm. Um, but those sort companies- FAB that resulted in, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but the merger then creates a new entity typically. Um, and it's done through what's called most often a stock swap or a share swap, uh, where the owners of the preceding companies exchange their shares for the new company. Um, it may or may not end up uh, being a company uh, that changes its name. Typically, it is. Okay. So, for example, um, and these don't necessarily happen right away, you know, but, you know, you get two pharmaceutical companies together and you suddenly get GlaxoSmithKline, you know, or you get AstraZeneca, you know, or they have a choice uh, if they don't want to take the names of the previous companies, the previous two companies of creating a new name. So then they come up with a new name and they create one like Novartis did, when, which was itself the creation of a merger uh, in, in that way. Mm-hmm. And what, what are the uh, differences in benefits from a shareholder's perspective? Would a, would a shareholder uh, typically prefer an acquisition or typically prefer a merger? Superb question. Okay. Uh, the shareholder right. of the of the smaller company would very definitely prefer to be acquired because when a company is acquired, there typically is a merger control premium, which is paid for that company. Uh, And on average, that's 20 to 40% higher than what the undisturbed share price is before the merger was announced. If you have, I mean, excuse me, uh, that's me misspeaking there, before the acquisition is announced, Mm In a merger, there isn't anyone to pay a premium to each other because the two companies are coming together to create a third company. So although there may be a very, very small uh, exchange premium paid to one just in terms of the rate that they get of the and, and the percentage that they get of the new company, it's nothing ever on the order of 20 to 40 percent or even higher, you know, as uh, as as will happen with some acquisitions. Mm-hmm. And, and from the company's individually point of view, um, do, is there any pre- preference from the, from the board, as it were, as to you know, for the boards involved as to whether they would go for an acquisition or a merger? Well, it really depends on what they plan on the outcome. And one of the one of the tenets that people ought to always keep in mind when they're doing mergers and acquisitions is that they shouldn't be really preparing for the wedding night. They should be preparing for life together. So it isn't all about getting to the marriage. It's getting to have that whole life together. And when you actually are then looking um, at, at, at whether they prefer one versus the other, it really is 
whether in fact you want to be in control and tell the other company what to do or whether you want to share control. Because again, when you look at the difference between mergers and acquisitions, typically in an acquisition, although there may be transition periods, uh, the senior management and the board of the target company will ultimately end up leaving. Although, of course, there are exceptions where one of the reasons to buy a company is because you want that senior management, but they certainly are not going to be uh, the leaders of that organization. Um, in a merger, you find things like co-presidents, co-CEOs, uh, boards that um, that are taken half from one side or half from the other side, or it might just be half plus one, you know, from the slightly larger or the or or the one that's in the more powerful position. Uh, you suddenly talk about sharing the decision making. Uh, therefore, if you are an employee, you probably have less certainty about what's going to happen. Uh, you don't know who's ultimately going to be in charge. And very often, uh, mergers end up with the situation that one of the two parties ends up being the stronger party and ultimately takes over either because they have the better products, the stronger management, the stronger culture, you know, mm -hmm. uh, or any of a variety of those. Mm -hmm. um, this region, obviously, as you've uh, referred to with uh, FAB, First Abu Dhabi Bank, has seen uh, that particularly large um, uh, merger, um, and there are others in the pipeline are being considered in, in this country and indeed in the wider region. What do you think is driving the um, move towards M&A um, in, in the banking sector in this uh, region? Yes. Um, again, great question. You know, but what's, what's happening here, uh, the only way I would rephrase that question is what's driving consolidation in the world? Because what's actually happening here in the region uh, is very much a parallel of what has been happening in, in the rest of the world and still needs to happen in the rest of the world. The world is overbanked, okay? There are many people who don't necessarily think that, you know, but, but it is. There are more banks than the world needs. Um, and certainly here in the region, you know, there's 50, 60 banks, you know, um, and does the region, you know, um, when you look at Abu Dhabi, you know, does the number of people here need that many banks? Probably not. Could they be more efficient? Could they offer better services? Uh, and then when you look into what's happening with digitalization and the whole fintech area, you know, not only do we have too many banks, but we have too many parties who are all pursuing the same activity in financial services. So what does that do? That means that you need consolidation. Uh, there will be stronger players and there will be weaker players. There'll be players that uh, complement each other. There'll be players that will be able to absorb some of the activities of others. Uh, it really is an industry that's ripe for consolidation. And this is not only, as I say, here in the region, although it's very much needed here in the region, but it's true, you know, across the world. And it has been going on uh, for a long period of time. You know, this started probably back in the 1980s, you know, in the United States, uh, as many trends start in the United States, um, you know, with the consolidation in the savings and loan industry. Uh, it has also led us to financial crises uh, as well, because sometimes some of these mergers don't quite go the way that you planned them to go. Um, but nevertheless, it is an industry, you know, where there's just too many players. And uh, particularly from a banking um, perspective, does a, a merger or indeed an acquisition generally lead to a better service for the consumer? Well, that's one where the jury is probably out on some of the deals that have taken place. But um, 
one would like to think, and certainly as somebody who studies and looks at M and A, um, we see it as as being just one element of the survival of the fittest. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, there are very few ways for shareholders to be able to get rid of bad management, to be able to change management, to be able to provide a better product, because there's a lot of inertia, you know, uh, that 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 companies get once they get to a certain size. M and A is one of the few tools out there that shareholders can use to shake up management. And from that perspective, management ought to, even by the threat of consolidation, be thinking about whether in fact they they have to provide better service. Um, and so I guess in theory, the answer to your question of does this, uh, should this be positive for consumers? Uh, the answer, and consumers, I guess that also would include small, medium sized, you know, mm -hmm. SMEs, family owned businesses, uh, high net worth individuals, uh, and even large companies looking for loans. You know, all of those ought to be better served by the, the mergers and the acquisitions mm -hmm. taking place, the consolidation in the industry. Uh, does it always work out that way? No. And that's partly because of the difficulty of implementing. Uh, to come back to my marriage analogy, mm -hmm. you know, uh, not every marriage is happy. Um, I happen to be fortunate to have one. Oh, um, myself too. <laughs> and congratulations on that. But <laughs> but too. it's um, you know, but but uh, not everybody does, and and not everybody's as fortunate as you and me. So, and the same is true in the corporate world as well. Mm -hmm. Corporate marriages sometimes do end up in divorce. Um, corporate marriages uh, do end up with some real challenges as mm -hmm. well. And talking of uh, potential divorce, um, of course, the recent news, uh, big news that, um, in fact, uh, Deutsche Bank, who, who used to work for, of course, and Commerce Bank, their planned marriage has, in fact, hit the rocks before I even got down the aisle. Um, that was a that was a long ongoing talks process. Um, what do you think ultimately scuppered those talks? Well, there's a number of things. Um, I, I was only uh, just smiling, and I know the listeners can't quite hear the smile, but I was kind of, uh, but, but what just occurred to me was they were they, they were probably changing their Facebook status. Uh, you know, there they were, they were, um, you know, they were thinking that they were going to be getting engaged, and suddenly uh, they're both now changing the status to single again. Um, <laughs> but it's... Um, uh, it is interesting looking, you know, looking at that particular deal. Uh, one of the things that's significant is that on the day that the deal was called off, the share price of both companies rocketed upwards. And, uh, you know, why would that be? You know, uh, well, first off, one of the reasons is, is that they were actually proposing a merger. Uh, so therefore, there wasn't going to be a premium to either company. Uh, but the market was saying, this is going to be very, very hard to pull off. You know, how are you going to get these two organizations to come together? Uh, the boards were not fully behind it, especially in, in, in the case of German companies where there's uh, employee representation, mm -hmm. uh, significant employee representation on the board. They were concerned about the redundancies. Yes, there was uh, a big pushback. That were going unions, to take yeah. place. Yes. And, um, and, and both organizations, you know, had been uh, coming on hard times had mm -hmm. been on hard times, you know, uh, and, and especially Deutsche Bank, you know, that had been such a leader in the world. Uh, I'd like to say, you know, 
back years ago when I was actually working at them back in the late 1990s and early 2000s, um, you know, and and just the shadow of its former self, you know, in terms of its impact on the global stage uh, from from where they had been. Uh, but now this actually frees them up to be able to, you know, do something individually. It also frees them up to be able to do divestments and to be able to demerge certain activities as well. And likewise, you've probably seen the rumors, you know, about the asset management group of Deutsche Bank, you know, that that may or may not be up for sale, but certainly mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. interest, you know, in that particular division. Um, and things like that drive the share price as well. So. Um, obviously, away from from uh, uh, the world of, of banking, um, what do you see as trends uh, globally in other areas uh, where M&A activity appears to be picking up or, or, or is, you know, enjoying a bit of a wave? Um, it is, it is, uh, M&A does go on waves, you know, so, so it is actually interesting to always try to call those waves. Um, people talk about the global wave, but I think it's, it's, it's more important to look at it, you know, in terms of industries as well. I mean, I think we're going through a wave here in the region, you know, in terms of oil field services, uh, with what's happening. I think that the change in, in, in oil price obviously always drives M&A in one direction or another in this particular region. Uh, and there certainly will be, in the whole energy and power sector, uh, continued consolidation taking place. Um, not always in the places that people are obviously thinking about, you know, uh, because there's a big trend right now of some of the big oil majors trying to get into the more renewable mm -hmm. sources. Mm -hmm. And how do you do that if you don't have that um, homegrown and organic? Um, that is through organic growth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you 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 go out and buy some of the startups that have actually been doing some activities there in 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 terms of trying to rebrand. But that whole uh, that that whole sector is is one where because there's so much change taking place, there clearly is going to be consolidation. I mean, the um, the gift that keeps on giving, you know, to M and A bankers has been the technology, you know, mm -hmm. sector. And I don't, and I mean what we traditionally think of as technology, not so much the companies that say they're technology companies, but really still aren't, um, mm -hmm. you know, on that. But but big tech is, is and will continue to see technology. And then you will see that impact of technology in other sectors. And I mentioned earlier about the fintech, mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the, the banks and the need to be able to, you know, involve some of the fintech and yeah. what's called reg tech and some of the other techs in order to be able to be, you know, to use some of the AI, uh, the artificial intelligence and to use some of the big data uh, that they have their hands on. And um, and and that's going to be important. Mm. Uh, Which is vastly valuable, of course, as oh, well. Yeah. Absolutely vastly valuable. And of course, um, you know, the whole financial sector has so much data mm. that they can use. And of mm. course, there's issues uh, relating to that, um, you know, that are important as well uh, in, in, in terms of the real ethical uses of that. Uh, but fortunately, I think that's, that's at least getting attention. Uh, the other one that I was just going to mention is healthcare. Mm -hmm. uh, that also seems very much to be the gift that keeps on giving, uh, you know, for the M&A market. Uh, but, you know, not only have you seen some big deals here again in the region, you know, in, in healthcare, mm -hmm. but that has been mirroring a lot of what's been happening, you know, on the, on the global stage. Um, not that it's necessarily specifically relevant to the, uh, um, you know, to the region here, mm -hmm. but the pharmaceutical sector is one where, uh, there continues to be innovation. There continues to be change, um, and that's one that we'll continue to see a lot of activity as well. Um, looking at places uh, that are not quite as developed as, say, the West or, or as this this region, um, I'm thinking of Africa, um, and and again talking about the uh, hydrocarbons industry, perhaps. Um, 
we look at the you know the world's youngest country, uh, South Sudan, um, which is sitting on approximately seven billion barrels worth of oil. Um, there's a company, well, there's several companies involved, but one of them being Trinity Energy, uh, which is looking to sort of lead the uh, the development of of the hydrocarbons industry there. Do you think that? The, the the big players globally would are kind of you know just watching that to get to a certain uh, state before they they kind of go right now we will go in and take it. Do you think that's a, a a potential way of looking at it, or do you think something like that Trinity would become a major player uh, by itself? Well, I mean there are really three ways that can play out. You know, one is that they become a major player themselves that they refuse offers, you know, even if people make them offers that they think they shouldn't be re- that, that 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 shouldn't be refused. Um, you know, it could be that they get to a certain size, you know, and they sell out and of course it could be that, you know, that the big players uh, you know, decide to try to find uh a way in themselves uh on that because that that, you know, as I say any of those three are an option on that. Um you know, two of those end up being M&A opportunities in some way, you know, that once they get to a certain size, it, it, um, when I think, when, when I think about a, a, a new developing market like that, um, it's a wonderful opportunity for lots of people to make lots of money while still developing a whole new kind of uh, area. I mean, in this case, Mm -hmm. you you can't say you're developing something totally new because it's, again, just another uh, set of hydrocarbons. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't mean that in any pejorative sense, but, Mm -hmm. but, you know, there's nothing new about that. But but it's exciting to be able to see when those things are taking place. But when you look at, you know, what's actually required in order to be able to – you know, to develop a field like that, you know, the amount of money is so large in order to be able to develop a, a, a field that large that you almost say that there's going to be some role that the large players who have the capital, you know, to be able to develop it are going to have to play a role. Mm-hmm. Scott Muller, it's been fascinating talking to you this, uh, this afternoon. Um, and thank you very much for coming in. Uh, lovely to be here. Thank you. Uh, that was Chris Nelson speaking to Cass Business School's Scott Moller. Uh, that's been an episode of the Business Extra podcast. Uh, thank you to Kevin Jeffers, our producer. And all that remains is thank you for listening. And please do join us again next time.